Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. When it comes to climate tech, there's a lot of new kids on the block. Investors that have brought billions of dollars of new capital and have helped fund climate innovation we badly need. It's rare that you find folks that have been investing in climate tech for over a decade, let alone two decades. So I was thrilled to sit down with Sarup Kaluri, who goes by Kitu, a longtime climate investor who sees enormous opportunity in the intersection of different technologies. We talk about several of his investments, from solar to wave energy, to energy storage, to risk resilience, and more generally about the role of AI and other advanced technology in changing the game for climate tech. Lots to learn and think about in this one. Enjoy. Hello, Kitu. Welcome to Invested in Climate. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I was got to say, I was thrilled when your team reached out to suggest we get you on the podcast. You've been recognized as one of the top 100 venture capitalists by New York Times and CB Insights, and you're recognized as a thought leader within venture capital. So naturally, I was excited that you wanted to talk about climate change. Let's start out and hear why. You're the founder and managing director of the venture firm Neotribe, where you invest in a wide range of transformative technologies. Tell us about Neotribe and how you view the opportunity to invest in climate right now. I started Neotribe Ventures, Jason, about six and a half years ago in early 2017. And our mission is to invest in what we like to describe as breakthrough technologies that stretch the imagination. So we like to invest in deep tech companies that are doing something new creating new categories of product. We invest in a broad range of sectors, all the way from pure software companies up and down the enterprise stack, fintech, insurtech, web3, to companies at the intersection of bits and atoms, as I like to describe it. Companies that are leveraging information technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning to innovate in life sciences, clean energy, robotics, 3D printing, and the likes. So my association with investing in climate tech actually started way back in uh, 2001, well before I even entered the world of venture capital. I made a personal investment in a company called Ion America, which went on to become Bloom Energy. It was also New Enterprise Associates' first investment in clean energy. I had introduced the company to NEA. So that's a little bit about how my association started with climate tech. Over the ensuing two and a half decades, I have been associated with solar, wind, ocean wave energy, energy storage systems, 
energy management systems, things like that. Kitsu, given your experience, you clearly bring the perspective of someone that hasn't just jumped on the climate bandwagon, but who's been thinking about and learning from climate investing for over two decades. So I'd love to hear what's changed. How is climate investing different today than it was? And what's particularly exciting to you in this moment? Let me do a little bit of a walk down memory lane, Jason. So when I joined NEA back in early 2006, our focus from a climate tech point of view was predominantly in the realm of energy generation. We did some in battery technology, but most of it was in energy generation. It was really around solar using silicon, SIGs, technologies like that. However, truth be told, those didn't really materialize into anything significant because the Chinese had glutted the market with very cheap silicon. All of these performance improvements really didn't add up to much and did not really translate into a cost advantage. Fast forward to now, I'm particularly excited about how climate tech could be transformed through the use of information technology and through the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning. I like to say this, that AI trumps physics. Just as an example, an investment that I made into a company called Heliogen is illustrative. Heliogen has built a closed-loop solar concentration system. And there have been attempts to use solar concentration to generate very high heat. However, those prior efforts were all open loop. And what I mean by open loop is those prior efforts tried to mathematically plot the movement of the sun across the horizon and then determine how the heliostat should be rotated. Heliogen came along and said, you know what, we're not going to plot the motion of the sun. We're just going to look at the reflection of the sun through a camera. And they placed four cameras on the four sides of the receiver. And if all four cameras did not spot the sun, then guess where the sun's reflection is pointing? At the center of the reactor. In this way, they were able to achieve a high level of accuracy. That's what's exciting to me about the intersection of this, of these disciplines. And it's not just in climate tech, in a variety of old economy sort of sectors, I believe that there is a massive amount of alpha to be created at the intersection of domains. Kitu, it's really exciting to hear that how AI and other technologies have advanced is really now game-changing for climate tech. And I'm glad you brought up Heliogen as an example. It's a company founded by Bill Gross, longtime entrepreneur and founder of Idealab. Concentrated solar isn't new to him. Probably about 15 years ago, he was CEO of another concentrated solar company called eSolar, and I got to know it through my work at Google. So it's really exciting to hear that the intersection of new technologies is now making the heliostat vision of directing and concentrating sunlight toward a target something that's now really viable and market-ready. So what else, Kitsu? Offer us another tangible example of breakthrough climate technologies that, as you say, stretch the imagination and are powered by this intersection of bits and atoms 
as you describe? So what happens is that when you want to extract and capture the energy of the sun, you're trying to generate very high heat, right? And we're talking, you know, north of 1500 degrees centigrade, uh, Jason. But what happens is that with prior methods, there was drift. So because they were based on some kind of a mathematical formula, there was over time drift. And so you were not able to concentrate the energy of the sun in a small area. That's what it takes to really heat that area up to that temperature. That is basically what Heliogen was able to do. Heliogen was able to say, hey, I'm going to use computer vision as opposed to some archaic mathematical formula. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I'm excited to hear how this works in other applications as well. Your insights that and belief that AI and other new technology is really changing the game for climate tech at a moment when we are in the midst of an energy transition that's really trying to replace an entire infrastructure that's powering the global economy. And you see AI as being a big key to unlocking the type of transformation we need. So really curious, how else is that showing up in investment opportunities? Another interesting area that we recently made an investment in is in a company called CalWave, which came out of Berkeley. And what CalWave does is it's capturing energy from oceanic waves, which is sort of an untapped area. So far, we've been able to capture renewable energy from solar and wind. Ocean is probably the last frontier that we haven't really tapped into as much. And it's got a lot of potential. And CalWave actually uses a digital twin or a control system that mirrors a particular device that they put into the ocean. It then determines whether to raise it or lower it based on the wind that's currently prevalent. Kritu, it seems we have some fun overlaps. Being based here in Berkeley, I know CalWave well and have been an advisor to Marcus, their CEO, for a few years. The way I've described it is that they use the Internet of Things to send signals to the underwater devices to lower and protect them during storm surges, and that helps solve the problem of durability that often comes with putting things in the ocean. Okay, so we have two examples of energy generation opportunities where software controls the deployed devices. What about an example beyond energy generation? Yeah, take take energy storage. We have an investment in a company called Energy Vault, which was also a Bill Gross Idealab company. And Energy Vault is using, again, computer vision to store energy in latent potential energy. So they use electricity to drive a motor, which then lifts concrete blocks up to a height. And then when you need to release that energy, it reverses that motor and the concrete block is lowered. And that releases the energy at a very high level of efficiency. And that's also using some amount of computer vision there to make sure that the blocks are properly aligned. That's an example of, again, how bits meets atoms is helping create a unique energy storage system, which has been inspired by pumped hydro. Pumped hydro is probably the most efficient energy storage system known to mankind. But there aren't that many locations out there in the world where there's a large water body adjacent to a hill or a mountain so that you can pump that water up 
then when you need the energy, you release the water down and it drives turbines, which in turn generate the electricity. Thanks, Ketu, for these three really tangible examples of bits meeting atoms and unlocking a lot of climate tech opportunity. Let's zoom out for a second and try to understand a more holistic view of these types of opportunities. Where else do you see the opportunity for AI in climate tech? And for what types of opportunities do you see it being especially helpful? I think in the area of efficiency, energy efficiency, which will immediately translate into cost per levelized cost of energy, that metric, I think AI has a huge role to play. Just as an example, solar and wind. AI can be applied to both of those areas to improve the efficiency of existing solar farms or wind farms. You can control the orientation of your panels, as an example, or you can use some predictive functionality to determine in a wind farm. In fact, I think we took a look at a company in this space and that's able to orient your wind turbines in a particular way or figure out when to turn them on, turn them off. If the class of wind is too high or too low. So these are some of the things that I think AI could be applied to because you have an abundance of data. AI doesn't work without data because essentially it is a statistical model. So you need data to help train those models. And once you're able to do that, then you will get a high level of automation out of it. AI can also help companies build resiliency into their business models. There's a vast portion of our economy today where companies are susceptible to climate change. And when I say susceptible to climate change, we're talking over a multi-year period. So now how can you use AI to help you build resiliency into your supply chain, into your, how do you do inventory management, into your pricing, things like that. So we have an investment in a company called Climate AI that helps young companies do that, young and larger companies do that. So that's an example of an application of AI that's not restricted to just climate tech per se. It could be any company that is impacted by climate change. Kitu, would you say AI or advanced software engineering is a requirement for you? Are you only interested in climate companies that are working really at the intersection of these new technologies? I wouldn't say it's a requirement because there are certain areas in the clean tech space that I'm very excited about that don't necessarily have an AI component per se. I'm particularly excited about hydrogen as a space and how hydrogen could be used not only as a fuel, but also as a way to store intermittent energy and store that at a pretty high level of efficiency. I think hydrogen will have a huge role to play in climate tech in general. Hydrogen is not going to be used in your sedans, but it will have a huge role to play in transportation, particularly commercial transportation. So while it's desirable to a certain extent, because it helps you protect your intellectual property some, I don't think it is a requirement, hard and fast requirement. 
Okay, thanks, Ketu. So AI isn't a hard requirement. What are some other technologies you're excited to invest in and think have a transformative potential for climate? I'd point to two areas, Jason. But before I delve into that, one comment I'd like to make is, if you rewind back to the 20th century, the seminal invention of the 20th century was the Haber-Bosch process. The Haber-Bosch process was invented by two German scientists who figured out a way of combining nitrogen with hydrogen to create ammonia. As you know, the covalent bonds in nitrogen are very strong. And so breaking those bonds was very hard. But these guys figured it out and was a pollutive process because it required a lot of heat. But it was a very important invention for two reasons. Ammonia helped us create synthetic fertilizers, and that helped us feed an exploding population. But it also did some bad things. It helped create bombs, which were used in World War II. So that, in my mind and in the mind of several experts, is probably the most important invention that we've had in the 20th century. Fast forward to now the 21st century, we have an energy crisis. But we also have a rapidly changing climate crisis. And we're being reminded almost on a weekly basis as to how climate change is impacting our economy, our way of life, and things like that. One of the things that I'm kind of intrigued about, and I hope that there will be more innovation in this area, which is how do you take gases like ammonia and methane and split them. So it's almost like the reversal of the Haber-Bosch process. So can you take ammonia and split it into nitrogen and hydrogen? We know how to transport ammonia in a safe way. Transporting hydrogen is actually not that trivial. Hydrogen is a flammable substance. But if we are able to figure out how to split ammonia we can now use that hydrogen and generate electricity using a solid oxide fuel cell like that made by Bloom Energy, for instance. I'm also just as excited about methane splitting. The problem with ammonia splitting is ammonia is not a naturally occurring substance. Methane, on the other hand, is a naturally occurring substance. We have natural gas resources all over the place. And if we are now able to split methane into carbon and hydrogen, not carbon dioxide, just carbon, then that makes for a very exciting opportunity. So that's one area that I'm excited about in general. Another area which I think is still, I would say, at a science risk stage, but has huge potential is nuclear fusion, which is taking deuterium and hydrogen and fusing them at some activation energy to create helium. So that's another area where I feel like if we have a breakthrough in low temperature nuclear fusion, when I say low temperature, we're talking about 1000 degrees centigrade, that could create a huge outcome for us. I'll tell you, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that nuclear fusion is a problem that's going to get solved. It's a matter of when, not if. That's how much conviction I have around that. 
Well, clearly many people agree with you, Kitsu, as billions of dollars have been invested in nuclear fusion. You say it's a matter of when, not if. So how long will it take? How many years do you think we're talking about? I'd say probably in the five to 10 period of time. Could happen sooner, but there are some brilliant minds working on this. Kitsu, let's talk more about timeframes and really the risks that you take on as an investor. As a venture firm, you need to provide returns to your LPs, and you can't wait decades for nascent technology to develop. You focus on breakthrough technologies that stretch the imagination. That suggests these are technologies that are really new and will take a long time to get to market. How do you think about time to market and the kind of risks that you're willing to take? So we typically don't take science risk, Jason. We will take engineering risk, but we typically don't take science risk. That said, there are exceptions. So we've invested in a company called Aquarius Energy that is working on nuclear fusion out of Stanford. They've got a collaboration with Stanford University, and we're excited about that company. But that one is still, I would say, is at the science risk stage. But when companies are at that stage, you're absolutely right. One is you don't know when there is light at the end of the tunnel and how long it will take to build a business around it. So we typically don't invest a huge amount of capital into that. But on other areas where there's engineering risk, we don't have problem taking that because then it's a matter of helping them tide over the engineering risk and then and figuring out the right go-to-market strategy for that. Kitu, before you created Neotri Ventures, you were at NEA, one of the largest venture firms in the world. Why did you decide to make that leap? So I started Neotribe Ventures because I did see a bit of a white space, Jason, in the venture ecosystem. So if you think about how the venture capital industry has transformed itself over the last, call it two decades or two and a half decades, fund sizes have increased dramatically to multi-billion dollar funds. But what that does is it prevents funds from investing in sort of that pre-product market fit companies. Particularly as it pertains to climate tech, you have companies that are coming out of maybe university or two PhDs who have figured something out and maybe have want to take it out of the lab and start to commercialize it. That amount of seed capital there is not a large check, but there is enough risk there that the large funds are like, no, I'll wait for you to demonstrate signs of product market fit before I write a 10, 15, $20 million check. That's where I saw the opportunity for a smaller size fund that's willing to take that early stage risk and willing to work with the entrepreneurs in helping them discover product market fit and then ting it up for some of the larger funds. Kitu, you weren't alone in seeing this opportunity for climate tech. There's now billions of dollars pouring into the market and there are many newer, smaller funds. Do you still see a gap in the investment space and the type of capital that's needed to fund transformative climate tech? I think there are firms and funds out there that are doing it. I won't say it is oversaturated by any stretch of the imagination because investing in these sorts of bits meets atoms or atoms meets bits kind of technologies doesn't come naturally to a lot of people. And 
It's also a different return profile, as you pointed out, might take a little more capital than, say, investing in a pure software company and might take a little longer than most enterprise tech companies. So you need to have a certain conviction to go after that space and a certain patience to go after that space. And if you have that, you could get reward. And it also requires a certain amount of technical expertise to evaluate those opportunities as well. So it's more deep tech than you'd find in other sectors. The other interesting development is the investment that the public sector has made, particularly when you think about how the federal government and certain state governments have supported climate tech. The Obama administration, the Biden administration have invested quite a bit in ARPA-E. My good friend, Professor Arun Majumdar, who is the head of the uh, sustainability school, the Door Sustainability School at Stanford, he was the director of ARPA-E in the Obama administration. And I know the kind of innovation that they help fund out of universities. They took science risk. Without them taking that science risk, I don't think we would have some of the innovation that we're now seeing that's sort of venture ready. Kitsu, I'm glad you brought up the role of government funding. Since ARPA-E, we've more recently seen massive federal investment through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the CHIPS Act, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Are these policies trickling down to early stage startups? Do you find entrepreneurs often citing these policies as unlocking new opportunity or providing tailwinds? I'm not hearing it that much, Jason, truth be told. I don't think young companies have figured out a way of leveraging that just yet. I think it is a step in the right direction. Things like the CHIPS Act, the Infrastructure Act, there is definitely a forcing function to invest in some of this. but. I'm not seeing it trickle all the way down to very young startups. Do you think it's just a matter of time for startups to feel the impact of these policies? Or do you think something else needs to happen? They could. I think the federal government needs to probably make it easier for young companies to take advantage of it. Today, a common complaint I hear from even chips companies, we have an investment in a company that's making a meta lens. It's named, it's a company called Meta Lens that makes an optical, it's a replacement for an optical lens. They've not been able to leverage the CHIPS Act, for instance. Kitu, something else that's changed since you started investing in climate tech is that now large corporations have taken an interest in climate change and have begun making real commitments to cut their emissions. Is this new corporate interest in climate making a difference to the climate tech companies you invest in? Or again, does something else need to happen here as well? I think a few things. This is where I feel like there needs to be a public-private alliance of sorts, Jason, where I think public policy could impact how climate tech evolves and makes it into a mature technology. We've seen this in the past where companies like Bloom Energy or even for that matter, Tesla benefited so much from the loan program 
And they also benefited from things like carbon credits and stuff like that. I mean, I'm reminded of how in India, for instance, the Indian government requires large corporations to set aside some of their earnings towards investing in innovation. In fact, they have to hand over a portion of their earnings. I think it's called CSIR or something like that, that program. And I wonder if there's something similar here that we could do, which would force large corporations to sort of pay forward and help younger companies, either through investment or through some sort of credit system. Because young companies... And young technologies tend to be inefficient and will not reach parity with unclean technologies that have been around for a very long period of time. This is where I feel the public policy has a role to play and large corporations have a role to play. Kitsu, across the companies you're working with, are there common barriers? For the first clean tech boom, people talked about the technology valley of death and companies getting stuck moving past piloting. I'm curious, is there now a common barrier that the companies you're working with are facing? What I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is this. It's not just restricted to climate tech. What I see with a lot of entrepreneurs is they fall in love with the technology they're building because most entrepreneurs, particularly in the whole deep tech area, tend to be technologists first. They fall in love with the shiny toy that they've built. What they fail to understand is the customer is looking for a solution. They're not looking for your technology or your product. They're looking to solve a specific problem. Bill Gross likes to say this, and I totally agree with him. In the life of a startup, it's not a little bit about product market fit. It is all about product market fit. That's something that a lot of entrepreneurs are guilty of ignoring. And what we've tried to do with the Neotribe is to industrialize that process and help them with streamlining the discovery process of product market fit. Kitsu, you've written a bit about leadership, and clearly you have a lot of experience working with CEOs and founders. What's some advice you have for climate tech leaders today? I think climate tech leaders need to diagnose very quickly what their strengths and weaknesses are and complement themselves with people that can add value to them, that kind of plug the holes in their core competencies. Ketu, thank you for sharing your experiences and insights, and thank you for all your time today. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, Sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.